All right, well, good morning, church. My name is Doug, one of your pastors here. It's a joy to be able to open up God's Word with you. Um, if you would, turn your Bibles to, if you have one with you, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. As a church, we are this summer walking through the Ten Commandments, and so our our series, uh, our sermon series is called Words to Live By. We believe that these Ten Commandments, while they were written long, long, long ago, they are for us today wonderful instruction, and they are for us today words um, that we should live by. We are this morning looking at the third commandment. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Hoke introduced to us and, and spoke to us on the first commandment. And in the first commandment, we, God makes it very clear that uh, he is primarily concerned in the first commandment with the object of our worship. God provides with absolute clarity that the only, the, only the one true God is to be worshipped. And there's no room for substitutions, for replacements, or for imposters. It's very clear as you consider the first commandment commandment, um, that that is what God is concerned about. And the second commandment, what we looked at last week, is that God shifts his focus just slightly and provides with us um, instruction on how we are to worship. The second commandment is a prohibition against worshiping idols. Not just are we not to worship idols in place of the one true God, but we are also not to worship idols as a means by which we worship the one true God. We saw that last week. And so this week, the focus for us this morning is on the third commandment. And the third commandment, we'll see, is very similar to the first two commandments. Ultimately, these commandments are, are helping us to take God seriously and to treat him with the respect the honor and the reverence that really only he deserves. In fact, if you study, as we study these 10 commandments, what you'll see is that the first five commandments share this, this intention that God has to direct our hearts and our affection and our worship to him. When we, we move throughout the summer into the, the next five commandments, that we'll see that the focus shifts to teaching us and providing instruction on how we are to live among one another and treat one another. So, so the first five really have to do with cultivating our heart towards the Lord. And so this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11, we find the third commandment. If you are able, I would invite you to just stand with me as I read God's word. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we do so with, with reverence, with respect, Lord, and with awe. As your word draws us to consider you and your name, and your very nature. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to this text, Lord, and I pray that you would use this word, which we believe to be, to be eternal and true, Lord, and we ask simply that you would, you would write it on our hearts as your people, and that you would use this word to shape and to form us, um, to become the people that you have designed and called us to be. Lord, we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, growing up... Um, uh, in my family, my grandmother was notorious um, for calling her grandkids, uh, instructing them on how to live. And she had a phrase that she would repeat over and over and over again. And all of our, uh, the grandkids was sort of burned in their memories. And it was simply this. She would look at you and she would say, little Dougie, 
me, okay? Don't cuss, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't chew, and don't date girls who do. Uh, that was her, you know, grandmotherly advice and wisdom to all of us children. Um, her heart for us, right? Um, as we approach the third commandment this morning, I think we are often tempted to consider the third commandment sort of in the same vein of instruction as my grandmother had for me. A warning simply to watch your mouth. Specifically what comes out of it. We're tempted maybe with the third commandment to think of it a little less like a sort of foundational principle for the people of God and a little more like helpful advice to avoid what we might call gutter language. What we'll see today is that the third commandment has a much broader meaning. Perhaps more significant than many of us thought. Sort of the big idea as we look at the text this morning, so sort of the, the primary aim is this. The name of God is to be taken seriously, not just in our speech, but with our whole life. I'll say it one more time. What is the third commandment? What is God trying to do in his people with the third commandment? He's trying to help us take his name seriously. Not just in the way that we use it, not just in our speech, but throughout the whole of our life. This commandment is ultimately about treating the name, the reputation of the Lord as it is. And that is holy. Deserving of our respect and our admiration. And so this morning as we consider this text and to consider this idea, we're going to make three movements. The first is we're going to consider the name of God. Then we will shift and consider the purpose of God. And then finally, we will look together at the people of God. And so first, the name of God. Anybody here, family who maybe has children, understands the importance and the significance of coming up with a good name for your kids. And me and my wife have wrestled over that challenge a number of times. In fact, one child, we went to the hospital and we had a name in mind. We had thought of this name, come up with this name for months leading up to this day. We walk into the hospital knowing that when this little girl comes out, this is what her name's going to be. Well, oh, I just gave it away. I was trying to tell you who it was, but okay, I got two girls. You can, anyways. When she came out, we saw her and we thought it was beautiful and glorious, but that name did not fit that face, all right? And so for a day in the hospital, that child was nameless, no name, because we understood the sort of the gravity of the situation, of the decision before us. We wanted a name that fit that beautiful, precious child. Names to us are a big, big deal. We, if you just glance back at the week's headlines in our local newspaper, you will see two significant stories that drive this point home, that make this point. Names matter to us. Apparently, they, they matter to NCAA collegiate athletes who, who want 
to be compensated for the use of their name, image, and likeness. We see this story not just in our city, but also throughout our nation is, is drawing some attention. Names matter. We see that the Johnson County Board of Supervisors recognizes that names matter. And they, they just recently this week decided to change the namesake of our county away from the former vice president of the early 1800s, Richard Mentor Johnson, and, and two, Lulu Merle Johnson, the first African-American woman to get her PhD at the University of Iowa. Regardless of how you feel about maybe some of those stories, your opinion, the fact that you have an opinion just proves my point. Names are a big deal to us. Names are a big deal to us. Well, similarly, Names are a big deal to God. Not just a big deal to us, but it's also a big deal to God. In the Old Testament world and cultures around Israel, the name of, of gods specifically was, was very significant. Knowing the name of a deity would, would, would indicate that you had a relationship with that deity. If you knew the name of a God, you would have access ultimately to that God, influence. And you could, you could even perhaps speak a, a word of blessing or of curse based on your knowledge of the name of that God. In the Old Testament times and the cultures surrounding Israel, names of deity mattered. They were significant. I think of even just today, if your phone is like my phone and at least 20 times a day there are people calling you from name, numbers that you do not recognize. Um, for me, the indicator, if I look at a number, I'm like, okay, I don't know. Do I answer? Do I not answer? Um, apparently, some wonderful person named Melissa long ago gave my number as, as her number. And so when I get a phone call, the, the first indication to me that I have no business talking to this person is when they say, well, hello, Melissa. Instantly, it's an indicator to me that they don't actually know me, okay? My name is not Melissa. So therefore, they don't have access to me. You understand? See, to know the name of God is to have access to him. The amazing thing about our God is that he has shared his name with his people. He has given us the knowledge of his name and access to him. To know God is to know and claim his name. In fact, knowledge of the personal name of God, Yahweh, was arguably the greatest gift that God gave his people. Or if you remember, if you have much familiarity with the Bible, back in Exodus 3 when God spoke to Moses. If you remember the story, he had, he had come down because he, he heard the cries of his people. He saw the suffering of them at the hand of Pharaoh. He, he heard them and he knew and so he came down and he commissioned Moses to deliver his people from slavery. He revealed himself not through an image of himself, but through his name. Moses recognized the need to know his name, right? If I go, he says, on your behalf to your people, they're going to want to know who sent me. What am I to say? What should I call you? What is your name? Moses wanted to know. It mattered. And you remember how God responded in Exodus chapter 3 verses 13 through 15? Kind of in this very significant but also slightly cryptic way. God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's a very intriguing passage. God repeats in the disclosure and the revelation of his name and his identity to Moses. He repeats the simple verb to be in Hebrew. Three times it's repeated. I am who I am. I am has sent me. In Hebrew, the name of God would, would be pronounced Yahweh. And it recalls the two I am verbs hitched together where God says of himself, I am who I am. And this name is almost always, if you read through your Bible, is almost always translated with the word Lord in all capitals. So every time we hear the word Yahweh or every time you see the word the Lord in your Bible with all capitals, you should think this is a proper name. Much like Peter or John built out of this word for I am. And reminding us each that God absolutely is. The implications of, of, of this name for Yahweh, for our God, are endless. He is the God who is. And as the God who is, he has no beginning. He has no end. He himself is absolute reality. He, he is utterly independent. He is constant. On and on we can go of the implications of God's revelation, the disclosure of his identity through his name. But for the sake of our purposes this morning, let's just remember that for God to reveal to his people his name was an invitation for his people to know him. An invitation for them to have a relationship with him. I mean, just think about it. I was recently at a, at a baseball game and there was a, a, a mom sitting next to me and a little girl had come up to her and she, she came up with excitement and celebration about how she had just met a friend. She was probably three or four years old. She came running over to mom. Mom, I have this friend. And she was telling her all about what her and this friend were doing. And the first question that the mom asked was, what was her name? Did, did you understand you've met a new friend? But what was, you know, she was in sh trying to help her little girl understand the importance of knowing the name of her new friend. Folks, the fact that God has revealed himself to us, has disclosed his very name to his people is an indicator that, that the God of the Bible is a God who, who wants to have relationship with his people. What an awesome demonstration of his grace and his goodness to us. The name of God matters. It's significant. Secondly, let's consider together, not just the name of God, but let's, let's focus and think about for a moment the purpose of God. What are we to do with the name of God? The commandment offers us some instruction. It doesn't just tell us that his name is, is significant or that it's a big deal. It also provides for us instruction on how we are to respond or, or not treat his name. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Not take. You shall not take. This idea is, in the original language, communicates the idea of lifting up. You shall not lift up 
the name of God. And, and most of our translations will say in vain or you shall not lift up the name of our God to empty worthlessness, completely void of all purpose. Another way you could, you could state it is you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, to worthlessness. God's name is to be treated, we said before, as it is, precious, holy. D don't speak of it as if it is completely void of purpose. Couldn't be further from the truth. God is a God of purpose, of meaning, and his name proves it as much. The Old Testament tells us over and over again that God acted throughout Israel and for Israel primarily for his glory or for the sake of his name. Just, just consider the, the, the way that God delivered them, Israel, from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, from the hand of Pharaoh. God discloses the very reason why he did this. Why would he do this? He's very clear throughout the Bible. He says, I acted for the sake of my name. Or if we consider just this, just the, the kind of up until this point in the text, he delivered them from, from Egypt, from slavery, from bondage. And then we know the story how they wandered throughout the wilderness. Well, his mercy was on them in the wilderness. Even though they were ungrateful, even though they were disobedient, even though they profaned his name and turned towards idols. How did God respond? God says he withheld his hand and acted. Why? The Bible says, for the sake of his name. For the sake of his name. Or if we consider where we are sort of in the story of Israel about how they're on the sort of the precipice of moving into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And we know that there are people that are waiting there. Moses is not going to go with them across the Jordan. Joshua will take them into the promised land. And as they get in there, they will encounter multiple tribes and different nations and cultures and people. And looking back at what happens as they, as they move into the promised land and conquest the land of Canaan, listen to what God's word says in 2 Samuel 7, 23. It sort of describes what happened. It says, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? God is redeeming his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. See, here's the deal. As they march their way into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, there are people there who have heard of the wonderful deeds, this great and mighty God, and these people who, who represent God. They've heard of his name, and they see the people coming in who bear and claim his name. And as a result, his name is exalted, is glorified, and it sends fear throughout the people, throughout the land. The Bible teaches us throughout the Bible, throughout the entire scriptures, that the works of God have as their ultimate goal the display of God's glory. The Bible is filled over and over as you think about the glory being put on display. What is the proper response to God's glory. When you see it, when you behold it, the Bible's filled. You could just go from one character to the next. Isaiah in chapter 6, 1, it gets a, a vision of God. And his response, woe is me, 
for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's a good response to a glimpse of God. Ezekiel saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and his response was to fall on his face. Daniel three times fell on his face after receiving visions of God, of heavenly beings. John in Revelation says that he fell at his feet as though dead after seeing a vision of the heavenly Christ. When confronted by the reality of God, we are to follow the instruction found in Hebrews. We are to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's the response that God's people should have to God's revelation of himself. That's the response God's people should have when they hear God's name. Awe, respect, reverence. God, John Piper says, God, God has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. God's concern is primarily and chiefly for his glory. His people and his, his unfolding purpose throughout eternity are directly linked to his concern for the preservation of his name. And this is the ultimate aim throughout eternity. It is, but it's also important to keep in mind, it's also not just the ultimate aim of, of God throughout eternity for his glory, but it's also for our good. When we align ourselves with the purposes of God, the response is freedom for us and, and flourishing for us as God's people. It doesn't mean life is easy, that there's no problems and it's just smooth sailing, but rather it means that God is, he's for us, then who can be against us? That there's nothing ultimately that can stop us. As God's people are preparing to enter into the promised land, he is preparing them for how they should live and conduct themselves. How they should ascribe worship and, and glory and respect to him, but they should also live faithfully among one another. And he recognizes that it is for their good when they give themselves ultimately to God's glory. These things are not at odds with one another. Next, let's move and consider the people of God. As we consider the Ten Commandments, because there is, these are commandments, right? These are, these are rules. These are words to live by. They provide for us, as God's people, instruction. They, they, they chart sort of a course, a path. They lay, lay it down before us. And the invitation that God wants for us is to walk on that path. To live our life in according to these words. To be people who are primarily shaped not by the competing influences of our culture or media or whatever influence you may think of, but rather are people who are primarily formed by God's word through his spirit. These are words for us to live by. And so as we zero in now and think about sort of the application, um, we will do just that. Think about the application. And specifically, when these words were given, I, wanted, I want us to think of sort of three different ways this commandment specifically would be sort of applied then. But then also I want to just shift and have you consider how it might be applied for us now. 
The first is this, three ways. The first for God's people hearing this word in the context sort of of their day. What would your average Israelite, how, how would he follow, he or she follow this? Or maybe break it. The first had to do with the swearing of oaths. Now the temptation may be to think, okay, this is not practical for us today. I want to encourage you to lean into this, okay? And consider with me how it might be. The first is the swearing of oaths. An Old Testament scholar writes that the third commandment was a prohibition against those who might swear false judicial oaths in the name of Yahweh. Israelites were to be truth tellers. Therefore, lying under oath was forbidden and God's name was not to serve as a cover for your lies. Now, Jesus affirms this truth telling standard in Matthew chapter 5 verses 34 and 37 where he says this but I say to you do not take an oath at all either by heaven for it's the throne of God or by earth for it is the footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king and do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black in verse 37 let what you say be simply yes or no Anything more than this comes from evil. Telling the truth is so important that swearing by God's name simply is not necessary. Why? Because we ought to be, as people of this word, as God's people, people who are committed to truth-telling, committed to the truth. So, so what would this look like for us here and now today? In our context where judicial oaths and promises are not really taken in the personal name of God. We break this commandment today, ultimately, whenever we attach God's name to lies in general. For example, false teaching. We violate the third commandment when we associate his name, God's name, to sort of validate or affirm our ideas, our opinions, or heaven forbid, our agenda. When we have ideas or opinions that we really like, and we, in order to sort of affirm them and, and validate them and justify them, we associate and attach God's name to them. And we see this everywhere across our culture in the Western world. We see it in politics. We see it everywhere, everywhere. And we think about specifically sort of our tradition, evangelical tradition, our world is fractured. And as we sort of navigate the political, the changing political and cultural landscape of our day, we must be very careful to ensure that the Bible forms our convictions before we insist that other Christians agree with us. Our convictions as the people of God are primarily formed by the word of God. By the word of God. We are people of this book. Regardless of our political affiliation, we see that happening, the, the opposite of that happening all over the place. And God says, let it not be. It's not a small consequence. If you look at the, the warning in the verse itself, in the, in the third commandment, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This matters to God. It matters to God. 
So the way that you, so the public oaths would have been the, or the swearing of oaths would have been one practical application then. Another one would be in public worship. We looked at this quite a bit last week, but God's name was to be taken up throughout the Old Testament in prayers, in songs, and in celebrations and sacrifices. In the book of Psalm, we see this all over the place. Psalm 63, 4, I will praise you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands. Psalm 116, verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. To, to lift up one's hands or to lift up the, the cup in the name of the Lord was to worship God, that's ultimately what the psalmist is saying. I will, I will worship you. And these are external sort of expressions of an inward heart posture. Lifting up hands, lifting up a cup. Things that you can externally see and do. But they reflect ultimately the posture of a heart which is inward. A heart that is caught up in the glory of the Lord and wants to elevate his name above all other names. Now again, we talked a lot about worship, public worship specifically, how we worship the one true God. We talked a lot about it last week. But it's important for the sake of the text this morning to, to emphasize that God is not interested in phony displays of reverence. Not interested in haphazard or irreverent attempts at worship. Rather, we are to offer God, to God, acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. Now I think again specifically in our tradition, this is one we have to guard against. In our current day and in our current context, there has been sort of a swing of the pendulum away from reverence, away from high and lofty religiosity and a, a desire to lean into the intimate, personal, casual relationship that we might have with God. And so there's an attempt to, to take even public worship and to make it as casual and irreverent as possible. To do so would be breaking the third commandment. God calls us to offer to him our very best. Our very best. He calls us to treat his name as it is, not flippantly, but with respect and admiration. We must guard against the temptation to just be cool with God, right? Certainly, he comes to us and offers us and wants from us a personal relationship, but this is the God of the universe. We saw what the right response was. When you get a glimpse of his glory, your first expression is, woe is me. I am not worthy. Let's be a church who, who holds God's name high above all other names. And when people peer into our lives, they know that to be true. Thirdly, the whole of their lives. How is this, is this commandment to be applied then and now, for them then, it would have been applied throughout the entirety of their lives. Remember, this is not just guarding our speech. God is trying to shape our lives in a particular way. How does the third commandment do that? God's people ultimately would bear God's name. 
Others would know that they belong to God because they claim God. And as they move into the promised land or they they spread throughout the world bearing and claiming his name, they serve as ambassadors of God. They give others an idea of who this God is by the way that they conduct themselves by the way that they behave ethically and morally in the sphere that God has placed them, by the way that they treat their neighbor, by the way that they talk about themselves. The third commandment was a prohibition against the use of God's name for merely human ambition or false sort of purposes. And Jesus had a lot to say about those who who would maybe put on a show with their religion Listen to what he says in in the gospel. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he doesn't abolish the law, right? But he says, these you should have done without neglecting the others. The first petition in the Lord's prayer is, hallowed be your name. No one could legitimately pray this prayer, hallowed be your name, could, could hold God's name as holy or reverend, reverent, um, without demonstrating it throughout their entire life, conducting their lives in a way that, that rather trivializes or minimizes the name of God for their own selfish deceit or ends. Now many of us maybe have experience maybe in our own lives or maybe we've seen this or for maybe some of you who are visiting today and maybe have not been around the church very much maybe there's a reason why you don't want to lean into the church is because you've seen maybe throughout the years hypocrisy of Christians. Rejecting Christianity because you've seen hypocrisy is actually nothing new. Listen to John Dixon's quote on this. He says, attacking hypocrisy is not a recent secular invention. It's not a product of the enlightenment or of a secular age. It comes actually from Moses and from Jesus. Their criticisms of religious hypocrisy were stinging and were frequent. People who would, who would bear God's name, but in their life show no demonstration of being godly people. This is nothing new. Jesus, Moses, railed against it. God himself calls his people to, to embody, to live out the name that they claim throughout all of their lives. This is nothing new. In fact, the cross of Christ is God's gracious and loving response to man's inability to treat God's name as they ought with all of their lives. How does God respond to his people's hypocrisy? I'll tell you how he responds. He sends Jesus Christ to die on a cross, to die the death that we all should die because no matter how hard we try, keeping each one of these commandments is an impossibility. We're all in need of somebody who can keep them for us. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. And we as his people get to claim his name. 
get to claim his name as ours. Those who, who profess his name are now to promote his fame throughout all of creation, throughout all of their lives. This is a tremendous privilege, but it's also a significant responsibility. What a name that we bear now, there's some here today as we consider maybe recent or historic sort of baggage that comes along with the name Christian. There's some here, maybe, and there's definitely movements in our kind of culture today that want to sort of distance, a little bit of distance from that name. It's caused a lot of pain in the past. It's caused a lot of trouble. God's word comes to us this morning and says, don't even think about it. His name, the name that we bear, Christ, is higher than any name that we could come up with. Any name that we would want to sort of substitute in his place. His name, there's no name that's higher than the name of Jesus. And everyone who calls on his name, on the name of the Lord, the Bible promises will be saved. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, we're told, in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His name, what a tremendous privilege and responsibility is to bear the name of Christ. Let's not distance ourselves from it. Let's embrace it. Let's embody it. Let's live up to the name of Jesus. What a charge for the church. In closing, I want to end with a, a story. Perhaps you've heard it before. I've heard it a number of times. And um, just this past week in studying for this message was reminded of, of this story. You know, Alexander the Great, as he moved eastward through Persia from toward India, sorry, Conditions were growing more and more difficult for all of those and his troops. And as a result, there were more and more deserters, people who would abandon sort of the mission and the troops. Typically, being sort of the fierce emperor that he was, typically such deserters were dealt with swiftly, with no mercy. They were hunted down and simply killed. There's a story of an exception. One young man, we're told, left camp in search for freedom, for liberation maybe. He was found and ultimately brought before Alexander himself. There he stood in front of the most powerful man on earth. You can imagine the scene. For reasons unknown, Alexander decided to let him go unpunished but not before asking him his name. The young man replied, my name is Alexander, my king, just like yours. King's response was one that assuredly left an impression on the young man. Young man, he replied, either change your name or change your life. Folks, when we claim Jesus' name, he gives us new life. He redirects the course of our life. And our job as his people is to stay on the course that he's marked for us. Alexander and, and Jesus, both mighty leaders, but very, 
very different. One conquered with force and might and domination. The other, in love, he humbly laid down his life for his followers. To call oneself a Christian is to claim the name of the greatest king that ever lived. Church, that is no small thing. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we um, consider your word again this morning, God, would you help us to be people who are faithful to your word? We confess that as we survey the times that we live, there is perhaps nothing more unpopular. Help us to be faithful. Lord, you are a great and mighty king who alone is worthy of our praise and our worship, whose glory exceeds that of anyone who's ever lived. And for your name's sake, you redeemed us and you've called us your own. You've invited us into your family to bear your name, to lift up your name. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the type of church that holds your name high in this community, throughout the nations, Lord, and in our lives and in our homes. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.